a lot of founders cannot handle psychologically getting yelled at by everybody on the internet at the same time. Like it's actually, it's actually, it sounds stupid, but it's actually incredibly psychologically scary to feel like everybody is yelling at you and you've done something very wrong and you're about to get ostracized from the internet. And when you fuck up an airdrop or you don't airdrop enough or you don't, you don't get everything exactly right, the internet is mad at you. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two pawn. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, unnamed trading firms who are very involved. Um, Alec.eth is the ultimate pawn. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros. First, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Hello. Next, we've got Robert, the crypto connoisseur and czar of Superstate. Good morning. And we've got Tarun, the gigabrain and grand poobah at Gauntlet. Aloha. And finally, I'm Haseeb, the head hype man at Dragonfly. So we're early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see choppingblock.xyz for more disclosures. So boys, uh, I think Bitcoin has found its new home at 50K and Ethereum, just as of press time, finally hit 3,000. So it seems like the Ethereum catch-up trade is starting to happen and a lot of it seems to be centered around a lot of excitement happening on top of Ethereum. So there's just crazy TVL that's now flying around everywhere in crypto. So I think Eigenlayer recently hit, what is it, 6 billion in TVL seven. and Eigenlayer? Seven, seven. Seven billion. Okay. 7 billion TVL and Eigenlayer. I'm, I'm sure it's probably gone up just in, in part because of the ETH. Uh, well, it's 20 billion by now. But must be. Must be. I must have quadrupled while we were just, while we were started recording. Um, and then uh, we, we just had this massive Starkware airdrop, which we're going to be talking about today. It's going to be one of the big subjects that everybody is discussing. Uh, and then, of course, Athena. This uh, new stablecoin that's kind of the hottest thing that everybody loves to argue about on Twitter, we're going to be getting into Athena as well. So we've got a lot of wood to chop today. So we're going to start with Starkware. So for those of you who listened to the earlier episode of Unchained, Laura got uh, Ellie, the, the CEO of Starkware, one of the co-founders, on the show to talk about the Starkware airdrop. So let's, let, let, let's um, take it from the beginning and describe what the hell is Starkware, what's this airdrop, and why is it such a contentious airdrop to begin with. So Starkware is a layer two. They're a ZK roll-up. Uh, their ZKs are, they, they use Starks, which are like kind of the granddaddy of uh, ZK primitives that is uh, different from Snarks, which is what most of the other layer twos use. I, uh, I, I suggest given that, properties. I, given that I suspect many of our listeners don't know what Stark stands for, other than the English word, maybe we should go through what the definition is just so it makes sense. Maybe we should, in, in like 30 seconds, go All through right. what the I definition mean, of a Stark I mean. is. Okay, go the for it. Stark stands for succinct, transparent, non-interactive argument of knowledge. Uh, an argument of knowledge is a proof that you have knowledge of some fact. Like I know that Hasib's bank account has minus $500 as its balance. I, I heard uh, that too. And, uh, but, but I don't, I don't show you that, that balance. I'm able to prove to you that it has minus 500. The succinct means that the proof is much smaller than the statement. So it's maybe logarithmic or polylogarithmic in the size of the statement. And the transparent means that we don't need to, I, Haseeb and I don't need to agree on anything, uh, any private information beforehand to generate such an argument. So this is sort of. A holy grail because the transparent part is actually very hard. A lot of cryptography that you use in blockchains actually has what's known as a trusted setup where there is some information that has to be coordinated in the beginning. That's right. my so, ELI 5 version. 
Very nice. So these guys are the inventors of Starks. Literally, Ellie was one of the inventors way back in the day. Um, and they were, he was a very integral guy in like the early days of ZK Proofs, Zcash, and Zero. He's also a very stuff. famous complexity theorist in computer science. So he's not. He's not. He's not like your average Joe Schmo crypto founder who's kind of an like, academic moron. Yeah, no, certainly. He's a very, very impressive guy, very impressive team. Um, and so I should also caveat that, that we are early investors into Starknet, uh, Starkware from, from like five years ago. Um, so Starkware, Layer 2, uh, a lot of excitement around them. And they ended up doing this big airdrop to users of Starkware early on. So they, they just launched their token at press time. Their token's trading around $1.92, which would put them around 19 billion FTV, $1.4 billion market cap. Uh, but it's a very volatile token, so it's obviously not a lot of price discovery yet because it's only people who've gotten the airdrop. Now, this airdrop ended up getting a lot of people upset on Twitter and for various reasons. Okay, So there are a few different components to their airdrop. And I think this is kind of a good microcosm to talk about airdrops and farming and airdrop mechanics and everything because their airdrop is a little bit different than a lot of other airdrops for a few reasons. So the first thing, um, they, they gave a, a big airdrop to people who use StarkNet and you know people who've done more than five transactions they were active for at least three months they've transacted at least a hundred dollars so okay this is kind of standard you use the blockchain cool here's some money um then you've got people who were uh eth stakers so if you staked uh eth and of course to stake eth you need 32 eth and so you know you have to have quite a bit of money in order to actually be an eth staker a solo staker uh these people also got a significant airdrop actually more significant than people who even used Starkware. Uh, and then you've got open source developers. So if you've contributed to one of the top 5,000 GitHub projects by GitHub Stars with at least three commits, uh, you got an airdrop. And of course, if you uh, added anything to StarkNet as a developer, you also got an airdrop. Okay, so that maybe in principle, that sounds uncontroversial. But um, in reality, so one, the amounts that were given to some of these different uh, groups was maybe a little out of whack. Some people got upset that like, hey, I use StarkNet. I got, you know, I don't know, $1,000, $800, something like this. But uh, somebody who contributed to an open source GitHub repo over the last few years got like $5,000. And like, why did they get all this money and they didn't even use Starkware? Um, now, I, look, I don't know how legitimate of a gripe that is, but whatever, people are upset about that. Um, the most interesting thing, and I, I think one of the funniest thing about this, is that the fact that they gave so much of the airdrop to open source developers has now incentivized other open source uh, projects to just get flooded with these farmers, okay? So now you have all these low quality people creating fake GitHub issues, just you know, fixing random typos, trying to do eight, like the minimum possible thing. Of course, none of these people can code. Uh, they're just trying to get airdrops. And so now all of these open source projects are getting flooded with bullshit comments, bullshit uh, uh, commits and pull requests from people who just realize that this is now the meta because of Starkware, we should just start contributing to random open source projects. So there was a great tweet from uh, a single, uh, from one guy who apparently tried to fix a typo in the Starknet repo, and he got 1800 Stark uh, airdrop to him for a proposed typo fix that wasn't even merged into the code base. Uh, so he fixed the word auxiliary, which was a typo and didn't get, didn't get uh, merged into mainnet. So this has gotten a lot of people uh, arguing about the mechanics of airdrops and also in the way in which they kind of end up causing this huge gravitational force on everything downstream in crypto. 
Um, and of course, Ellie was on the show defending the mechanics of the airdrop and saying, look, you know, we kind of tried. Clearly, people are upset because some people got excluded. Some people were included who maybe got too much, blah, 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 whatever. Um, and uh, there was a, an interesting comment that I don't know if you guys listen to the show, but uh, Laura made one interesting comment to Ellie that I that kind of pissed me off. But um, she said, you know, look, uh, the, the people who are getting the uh, the solo stakers on Ethereum, right, they got they got a bigger airdrop than people who are using StarkNet. Um, you know, these people have a lot of money, right? If you're if you're solo staking, you have at least like 100K of Ether. Um, so, you know, how can you claim the project is decentralized if these guys who have a lot of money got, uh, you know, got a bigger airdrop? Which, of course, has a certain implication about what it means to be decentralized, right? Like decentralized, actually, the, the real word I think they should have used is egalitarian. Which of course is not the same thing as decentralized, but I don't know. Curious what your guys' reaction is to this whole argument. Clearly, it's got people up in arms. It's got people very upset, and also clearly, it didn't have that much of an impact on the market reception for the token. So I'm curious what your guys' reaction is to this whole. So I have a one very strong opinion on this, which is the thing about airdrops is you kind of have to do something new once for it to kind of be for you to kind of get away without as much complaint. Uh, complaining of this form. So in Starkware's case, whether they decided before or after Celestia to do the developer airdrop, Celestia would, was arguably the first to successfully pull it off um, with the drop, airdrop. Actually, I think, uh, I don't even remember this, Handshake actually did this back in 2018. Just no one yeah, gave a shit. Up. And so everyone, no one was uh, farming <laughs> GitHub back, uh, yes, back then. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. That's right. That's fair. That's fair. I should, I should give, I should give the provenance. But in the world of industrial air farm, airdrop farming, um, the, the first to really successfully do the GitHub drop, and they didn't just do a GitHub drop in Celestia's case. They also did a, a, a airdrop to Ethereum researchers, people who academics, like they did a much wider ranging thing, which arguably maybe Starkware was front run because like I'm sure they were trying to launch their token for longer because they've existed for longer. Um, and I'm sure that maybe it's very likely and possible, I don't know if this is true, that Starkware already had the airdrop design done before, but Celestia beat them to the punch. But by being first, you kind of get the street cred of like, wow, they found a new way to do this. And like, okay, now we have to make a game for it, right? Like we have to figure out how to game it. Um, and I think the problem with Starkware was a really large, really anticipated token, existed for many years, uh, embroiled in the three arrows liquidation, right? Like, you know, I don't know if you remember the three arrows liquidator, who is a moron, who must be some sort of moronic entity, uh, couldn't figure out how to execute the warrant and like lost the majority of the three arrows. Like, I think it was like 50 to $70 million, something of, like that in Starkware. Uh, so they didn't get the token. So the, the three arrows of state. Holy shit. Uh, Apparently, I didn't realize that like, they didn't. They didn't end up fixing that. Yeah, Sue and Kyle Ooh. were screaming on Twitter yeah. about this, like right when the whole thing blew up. Yeah, yeah. And... yeah. Apparently, they didn't pay the two hundred fifty dollars or whatever five hundred dollars to execute the warrant, <laughs> and so they lost out on like I don't know how much Stark. So anyway, so my point is, Starkware has been a. Everyone's kind of anticipated the launch for a long time. It you know. Despite maybe having more of a nascent developer community than say like an Arbitrum or Optimism by like a long shot, uh, and not much TVL, which is one of the things that people are complaining about on Twitter, uh, you know, it, it is it's a very well known project, and I, I think 
The problem is with airdrops is you kind of need to be the first to come up with a new mechanic. The moment you make that, then then there's a string of copycats. Like look after the Celestial launch, you saw a million of these like GitHub drop things, but none of them were sufficiently big that it was worth you know the spread between the the GitHub drop versus the the liquidity airdrop was was small, and I think basically. Starkware probably should have taken that into account in this in the sense of like you, you the mechanic is kind of already played out you're such a large launch you have to come up with something new you can't kind of do something that existed because it'll be it'll be farmed to death uh, and I think you know I think more academic teams suck this up like all the time in crypto it's like look at like all of the aptus we airdrops you know it, 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 there's they're sort of a this this is an exemplar of people who are like maybe you're not paying attention to D the DGEN landscape with good reason, right? They're, they're not supposed, that's not their team character, right? But this is a very important lesson, which is like, if you're a big enough airdrop, you have to have a new mechanic. You cannot copy pasta something or like use something, even if it's not copy pasta, you can't really use it again. The moment you do that, you're kind of dead. Well, scroll right after the Starkware airdrop basically kind of alluded that if people contribute to the scroll repo, they may kind of somewhat possibly get an airdrop. And now scroll is being overrun with all these bullshit commits and uh, bullshit pull requests and issues. Yeah, but so, I actually think this is good because this gives you a training set for how to, to write, train a, to train a little clap, like boosted tree classifier to, to filter out all the shit commits. Filter out right? bullshit like, comments. Yeah, okay. well, well, you need to go manually label which ones are bullshit and this which ones are not. This is a good undergrad data science project, actually. Like, okay. I, or, I, the opposite. I would give this as a homework assignment it trains people to train llms to make fifty thousand github yeah PR. that's the scary thing right is that <clears> like what because it's a it's a generative adversarial network so you you once that once the junior data scientist shows up and starts cutting these someone's gonna be like oh shit i should just use gpt4 gpt4 i just feed it or gemini 1.5 with the new giant context window i just shove the entire code base in and it writes some plausible commit you know, like something that kind of looks like maybe it's a feature, but it doesn't quite work and it breaks things. And like yeah, that's what this I, is now I incentivizing. Think, think it's point, starting an arms is, race. The point is that like the maintainers of the repo still maintain the call. Like it's not like the PRs are getting accepted. So all you're right, doing it's, is it's pushing. All you're doing a noise is attack, right? I have to have an LLM itself to read the commit to be like, is this a real commit or not? Right. Like, again, we're getting back to the like, how do I make a classifier of like the real versus LLM? Speaking of, of noise attack and, and GitHub, actually, this is also uh, one of the new interesting phishing vectors that I've seen where um, uh, people will, because generally speaking, your GitHub you know, notifications for new issues or tags are like open by default, right? Because if there's a issue that you're on or you get mentioned, like you want a notification about it. And so people will make new issues or new PRs, and uh, but the, the issue or the PR will be a fake Celestia airdrop or, oh, you got a job offer from GitHub and click this link to go apply. And so now I didn't have my things turned off initially and now I just turned them off, but I was getting emails um, with like a, you know, it, it looks like a GitHub issue email and it's like, you know, claim your Celestia airdrop here because they tag you on GitHub um, and therefore you, it sort of circumvents the normal spam filters because it looks like it's coming from GitHub or it is coming from GitHub. And so, you know, I think uh, it, it really is just like this, this cat and mouse game. I mean, if GitHub becomes the next battleground in like spam and scams, it's going to be really disappointing. <laughs> this is right. This, I mean, I don't know. I find it. You very could stupid. argue that GitHub caused it by making Copilot because that's what really got the LLM market turning. 
I I don't if think I would play this on GitHub. I think I would play this on lazy airdrops. I I think this is like so obviously foreseeable, and uh, I saw a couple tweets from people saying like, no no no, this is actually good because now crypto is going to make people learn how to code. And I'm like, that is not what's going to happen. Like, <laughs> what they're going to learn how to do is how to game the system with as low effort as possible. Um, Tom, you've historically been the most kind of anti airdrop or like the airdrop minimalist. What's yeah. your what's your take on the Starkware airdrop? I, I feel like I just kept getting proven correct where, uh, you know, every, everybody gets mad. This doesn't really accomplish the goal of whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish. Um, and it just creates like a lot of you know n negative press in the interim. I think even successful airdrops don't really accomplish the goal of what they're trying to accomplish. Like if you look at the um, you know data analysis of different airdrops that have happened uh, you know throughout the past few years, the vast majority of people sell. They never participate in governance. They never stake. The people who buy the airdrops do actually end up participating in governance and holding more than the people who are selling it. And so sure, maybe you know people get excited, you know, sort of like Gito and, and maybe it creates like a little bit of a wealth effect, but it is very expensive ultimately for, I think, the goal that people are trying to accomplish. And so, um, you know, I think maybe the answer is you'd be really surgical. And I mean, for Starkware in particular, like people who learn Cairo and build on Starkware are like very dedicated and very committed. Great. Give them some sort of fat grant. But like, I don't really think, you know, uh, giving a bunch of Stark to GitHub, you know, one of the top uh, people who contribute to the top 5,000 GitHub repos is really doing anything. Those people are not actually going to, you know, participate in the Starkware ecosystem just because they got some Stark. I, I mean, it's the same way that the Uniswap airdrop, right? Arguably rewarded a lot of the earliest developers who built anything that touched Uniswap, right? Because it was like, yeah, but the problem is once you do it once again, like it, it, it becomes a feature and a model to predict the next thing, right? Like I remember like, even for all these point systems, people are just constantly training these like simple classifiers to be like, oh, am I like based on the points I'm getting, like which features are, are the ones that are most cor correlated and like, let me change my uses to map. It is, it is, it is, it is a trading strategy fundamentally, right? And I think the problem is the teams are maybe a little like naive and thinking that's not, which is fine, right? They, they might not be used to thinking that way. Fundamentally, doing the airdrop is, is a form of a trading strategy, and you have to think about it like a trading strategy. And a, a strategy that is public and can be copied is very hard to execute properly twice. And I, I think that somehow is like lost on the teams that do this. I, I think the other thing is that it's, and this is maybe even going a level simpler, it's very hard to get yelled at on the internet. And I mean that very seriously. Like it's very Let's psychologically see, difficult to get yelled, yelled at on, on the internet. internet. I've been yelled at on the internet many times and I've built up a very thick skin over the years of being yelled at on the internet. But I think a lot of crypto founders, a lot of founders cannot handle psychologically getting yelled at by everybody on the internet at the same time. Like it's actually, it's actually, it sounds stupid, but it's actually incredibly psychologically scary to feel like everybody is yelling at you and you've done something very wrong and you're about to get ostracized from the internet. And when you fuck up an airdrop or you don't airdrop enough or you don't, you don't get everything exactly right, the internet is mad at you. And when the internet is mad at you and everything that you have built is on the internet, it almost looks like you know, the, the, the vandals have broken into your house and they're threatening to like destroy your fucking livelihood. So I think a lot of these founders, they just, they might know intellectually that yes, airdrop farmers are not my real users. These people are kind of, you know, they're, they're cavalier. They're, you know, once upon a time, I think like in the Uniswap era, there was a more genuine connection between airdrops and users. 
And the people who used Uniswap early, of course, they had no idea that there was ever going to be an airdrop. There was no ulterior motive. It was just people who, yeah, they were early DeFi users. You know, like that was a real thing back in 2020. In 2024, that's not that's not what's happening, right? There, of course, are real users of Starkware, and there are real Cairo developers, and there are there is a real community there. But airdropping to the set of people who have more than five transactions and they have more than hundred dollars and da, da da da, like that is is you know probably less than 20 percent of those people are actual organic users of these blockchains because of just the degree of industrial airdrop farming. And right. so I, mean, I think they know that, right? They, they know they that, but they can't. Yeah, they do yeah, know that. I but the reality hard. is that it's just, it's just, it's just hard to be like, yeah, fuck y'all. Like, fuck all of you guys. Like, use our product. Here's a blockchain we built. What else do you want from us? It's hard to do that. It's just hard. Yeah. I mean, there's two points here. One is that I think the teams conducting the airdrops know everyone knows that it leads to a huge amount of everyone trying to game the airdrops and driving up bullshit metrics, vanity metrics very clearly, right? Like, you know, whether it's Starkware or any L2 or any platform, you know, people brag about on Twitter, I made like 70,000 different wallets, you know, and I botted it. Like, you know, but to the project, it's like, ooh, 70,000 addresses. Like, that's like, a positive vanity metric. Like we like that guy because he made 70,000 wallets, right? And the the root of the airdrop industrial farming problem is this question of egalitarianism, which you alluded to earlier that Laura brought up, which is should airdrops be based on like some Boolean, did you use the thing or not, regardless of size, regardless of value? And if the answer is yes, then it inevitably leads to people trying to Sybil attack this stuff with 70,000 accounts. If it's completely non-egalitarian at all, and it's strictly a linear function of wealth slash value, it's almost impossible <laughs> to Sybil attack it. There's no point to doing that. And so, you know, my long-term prediction is that, you know, projects move away from this concept of like, oh, you know, some level of egalitarianism, like, you know, one wallet equals one token type mechanic, knowing that it's just so, so easily gamed and it's gamed by the so people broken. you want the least, right? Who have the yeah. least connection to your project and the least, like, interest in participating in a positive way. It's, it's almost theft in the open for them. And so, you know, I think over time, Projects will move away from an egalitarian structure to one based purely back on value again, and where it's, you know, linear. Oh, you use this with a million dollars for seven months. You know, that's seven million tokens. Oh, you use this with a hundred dollars for a month. That's a hundred tokens. And I think that will fix a lot of the problems. And it's harder to say because honestly, there's tens of thousands of airdrop farmers, if not hundreds of thousands of airdrop farmers. <laughs> no, it's got to be more. Yeah, it's got to be. At this be point, yeah, I mean, people like in poor countries. Right. Yeah, people in poor countries, this is like the most valuable source of income they have. Honestly, it's like more lucrative than being a doctor in a lot of places is to be an airdrop farmer. And so at a certain point, you just have to like, you know, design cognizant of the fact that like there's a lot of people all over the world whose profession at this point is airdrop farming. The weird thing is that I think since the Uniswap airdrop, there's been this kind of weird connection in people's heads that I think is, is it's not quite fully articulated that there's a connection somehow between launching a crypto project 
and doing some kind of social redistribution or some kind of social welfare that essentially like, look, we're creating all this wealth, we're creating these new platforms. And at the same time, we sort of owe it to the world, to crypto, to, some, to something to spread the wealth. In reality, of course, like we, we know that the people who end up getting a Starkware airdrop or getting, you know, a GTO airdrop or whatever, um, overwhelmingly the first set of users sell. The people who receive the airdrop overwhelmingly sell. We've done enough data science on this. We've seen it so many times. Saw it with the Uniswap airdrop. You know, at, at this point, we, we know all the metrics. Even the founders know the metrics. That the people who actually receive the airdrop are not sticky. The people who sell the airdrop overwhelmingly sell or they never claim. And there's very few people who receive the airdrop and hold the tokens. So to the extent that you're thinking, ah, I'm going to allow people to experience the growth of my network, they don't. They don't experience the so, growth so, of the network. So I, they I get... disagree with you in one, one aspect of this, which is when it is a new metric, when it's a new measure of distribution, not like, you know, in the way that like Celestia kind of like- That no one can predict. It, that no one can predict. Last game. Uh, a lot of those people are very loyal to your to your network. I mean, look at Celestia. Like they actually their retention on on airdrop users is much higher than all the copycats. In fact, the correct well, I way don't to know the numbers them, for Celestia, but look at no, Uniswap. No, no, no. Uniswap was the original. It was the OG, right? It, Uniswap is the proof that of, of course nobody could have gamed the Uniswap airdrop. No one even knew that an airdrop was coming. And still, there, what, what was it? Something like like 15%, 10% of users who claimed the airdrop like didn't sell? 90, 90 plus percent still don't have it. Um, I think it was Jack Hasworth, uh, is it the uh, variant data scientist, did a really good uh, blog post on this. Well, but... the, re the, re the reason I'm making this point is that I think for, for layer ones and, and yield bearing networks, whether the yield is via subsidy or whether the yield is via fees, that, that, that's a thing that people love to fight about. But yield bearing networks tend to have just like significantly higher retention and Uniswap was just not a yield bearing thing, right? Like it, there was no real accrual story to it. Okay, um, you're saying if Uniswap had staking, then they would have had higher airdrop retention. I, I'm just saying it, it they would have had higher retention. I, I, I'm not saying it would be like, you know, 10x higher. But I, my point is I think there is this thing when you're the first and if you have a compelling enough story, you do have higher retention rates relative to the, these copycat nonsense. To be clear, I, I think I, I think that's a bad explanation for Celestia. I think the reason why Celestia has high retention is because no, of the everyone amount wants of the, other the airdrops airdrop. happening. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's the reason why, not because of the mechanics that, of the that, airdrop. That that is the that is calculated in your ex expectation of future yield, right? That that was not there for Uni. People weren't like, oh, like like yes, we expect to get airdrop to Uni holders, right? Like that was not in the. The, me the meta of the right, right, right. But that was a, that's an emergent property, right? That's not a well. We planned the airdrop in such a way that a bunch of other people are going to airdrop. Well, to I think holders. in the case of something like Celestia or something like Eigenlayer, where people who are building on top of you launch a token inevitably, there's this nice feedback loop of like every app airdrops to the host, right? Like right, right. You know, Which you, is a you, good you, argument for building a successful protocol, right? Like that, that's no, the key thing that causes growth. these airdrops that's to what show. I'm saying. It's good for, in those cases, ecosystem growth is, is, is quite, is more sustainable than, but, but right, yeah. But I'm think, saying, look, as an entrepreneur, you can't plan for that, right? You can't be like, well, obviously, I mean, maybe Starkware thinks this. Maybe Starkware is like, well, now that I have my airdrop recipients, all the Starkware users are going to get tons more airdrops and therefore my, you know, Stark airdrop is going to be super sticky. That's not a plan. Maybe that's nice. That'd be nice if that were true, but I don't know what you can do ex ante to make that happen. Well, I think you have to come up with a new, a completely new type of thing that is much harder to predict, right? Like, 
you have to give credit to the teams that figured out how to do that versus the ones that like didn't react to the market changing. And that's what I'm saying. An airdrop is effectively a one-time trading strategy, right? Done by the team. And if the team doesn't adjust their trading strategy to the market conditions, i.e. other airdrops changing the circumstances, then obviously they're going to get blown away in, in this kind of scenario. It, it's, it's just like, Right. I, I think the problem is just that teams don't think of it as a trading strategy. And that's because they're, they're thinking of it in the social welfare sense. But it really is fundamentally a trading strategy, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, um, you, do raise, you do raise a good point that you know, if you do manage to create a new identity set that is clean, uh, in a way that I mean, almost every uh, derivative airdrop is not going to be clean, right? But if you're sort of the first to be like, hey, here's a new clean set of identities of people who are real crypto users or as close as you can, the cleanest possible version of such a data set, um, people want to airdrop to that data set, right? That's why like Farcaster, for example, Farcaster users are getting so many airdrops is that it's a clean data set. And so in a way, it kind of behooves you to to come up with some mechanic that can kind of clean out the airdrop farmers or is sort of looks unincentivized or looks like it's okay, this is probably not going to be getting any airdrops. And then you actually end up airdropping to those people. Um, I think that's getting harder and harder. And so I think the ability to bootstrap like a sort of new civil resistant set of people that can be future airdrop recipients, um, it gets harder and harder with every subsequent airdrop. Um, I mean, now GitHub is <laughs> now GitHub is contaminated thanks to uh, Starkware and scroll, and so you know you 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 uh, you're gonna have to go farther afield in order to find you know where where can we actually find a clean set of users? Maybe before too long, it's gonna be uh, you know people with their eyeballs scanned in uh, in uh, Worldcoin. That might be the last bastion. Of well, Worldcoin Worldcoin's price suggests that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that's that's what it is. It's basically, just a airdrop registry. Um, so. The other, the other uh, uh, story around uh, Starkware is the unlocks. And this has also been another kind of drama on Twitter. So um, Starkware, so let me, let me um, just take a step back for those who are not familiar. So generally speaking, when the team and the investors invest into a project early, uh, generally speaking, they don't get liquidity at the moment of a token floating and, and or an airdrop getting distributed. Uh, usually the standard is that they will end up waiting about a year uh, after the uh, token starts floating, before they face a, a cliff, which is the initial unlock, usually they they unlock some portion or they start unlocking, and then they unlock over some period of time, usually four years, three to four years is the standard for uh, most projects. So, um, so basically, the, um, the the people who initially get the airdrop or who farm the token, mine the token, stake the token, their tokens are circulating for quite a while before the team or the investors start um, entering into the market. So, be fairly similar to what you'd expect from most companies, securities, things like that. Um, now, there is actually a rule under the SEC, Rule 144A, which generally requires a restricted security, which is something that you're buying from the acquirer uh, that has to be, um, there, there are a bunch of different rules, but more or less the standard is that uh, it has to be, uh, it can't be traded for at least a year. Um, now, technically, or I don't know, none of this has been tested in court with securities, or sorry, with the tokens, because whatever, you know, it's tokens, there's no case law. But uh, my understanding, and I'm not a lawyer, so take all this as a grain of salt. But my understanding is that uh, generally the thought is that uh, the timer, the one-year timer for this Rule 144A exemption to trading these restricted securities uh, starts either at token generation, which is often called TGE. That's when you deploy the contract that has the ERC-20 token balances, or it starts when the token starts trading. And nowadays, there tends to be a lag, 
between the two. That people actually deploy the contract first, and then later the token starts trading, but the contract is initially deployed without any tradable, like the contract is locked essentially, it can't be traded. Okay, so Starkware, uh, you know, obviously they, they sold to US investors, um, you know, we're one of those US investors, and uh, well, we're not literally in the US, but whatever, you know, for all intents and purposes, we're SEC regulated. So uh, that, that timer started for Starkware when they launched the token contracts, which was about 10 months before the token started floating. So about 10 months before today. That means that everybody who was an investor or a teammate who was put on that one-year timer, that one-year timer started when the token was deployed, not when the token started trading. Token started trading basically yesterday. So that timer expires in two months. And so many people are very upset that Starkware tokens uh, from the investors and from the team start their vesting two months after uh, the, the token started floating and people are very upset about this. Um, Curious to get your guys' response. Uh, there's been a lot of back and forth about it. Um, I think this is pretty non-standard. I haven't seen a lot of other tokens do this. To, to be fair, I've only the, seen market a couple knew, other times. the market knew this happened because of Sue and Kyle, because their exercise time was at the generation event, which was in 2022. So like, I don't fucking know. All you people who are complaining, maybe you should have fucking listened to what they said. They told you the the, the their liquidator didn't exercise the warrant. What the fuck does that mean? Oh, well, actually, the event had to happen then. I think that's the part that I find hilarious, and it, it more has to do with the fact that people on Twitter just love thinking they're experts about things, but then like are willing to forget the facts of like they didn't actually read into someone actually telling them the answer earlier, and they pretend it didn't happen. Yeah, I'll preface by saying I'm not a lawyer nor a securities lawyer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but one rule one forty four is one of many different rules that in a sense, to my knowledge, establishes a type of safe harbor so that transactions can occur. It's not the only one, but the intent behind it and what it basically says is that if you wait a year from when you acquired a restricted security that was purchased from a private company and it wasn't meant to be sold to the public and you wait a year, then you're not an underwriter. And you as the buyer who then is going to be selling it, you're not tripped up into like broker dealer requirements and like these complex mechanisms. And it's like, if you wait a year, you're safe. Now, you know, there's other ways to potentially not be an underwriter or not like trip up those rules. And obviously the specifics of Starkware, I'm sure they have teams of lawyers, you know, walking them through all this stuff. But, you know, it's possible that we're like from the outside, just oversimplifying it. And the way they're doing this, you know, it's not an issue at all. Fine. You know, everyone waits two months and then it's good. Or it's possible they could have not even waited those two months if they had other ways to demonstrate that they didn't buy it with an eye towards underwriting the offering and then reselling it or all these things. So I, I don't think this is, you know, too high um, importance uh, to focus on. It, it does seem like an oversight though, right? And, and I've seen often it, it's specified more as network launch versus TGE, and then you sort of get around this issue uh, where, okay, in reality- TGE being token generation event. Correct. Um, people assume that your vesting would start um, at the time the network launches, and so in reality, they'd have an unlock a year from now. Um, and so it feels like you know maybe there's just some, some oversight there, or like, again, maybe this was uh, uh, the language was set a while ago, you know, when these warrants were done, and then okay, now there's TGE, and and so uh, you sort of get the two, the two conflated. Yeah, um, TGE generally refers to when the contract is deployed, not when the token actually starts trading. 
which is this weird kind of in no man's land. Again, we don't we don't really have good industry norms around this yet. I suspect that the backlash against this, and to be clear, I, I more or less endorse the idea that investors should just kind of do the standard thing, which is wait a year after the token starts trading before they start unlocking. I think that gives people roughly the same expectation. Or you just mostly want to stand in line with the market and not surprise anyone. That said, Starkware was pretty transparent, right? This has always been there. If you look, if you see the the whatever token investing chart thing that everybody always shows, um, it sh- it showed it, right? There's there's no surprises. There's no secrets. Um, this has been very straightforward from day one. I think people just learned this once they got the token and they're bullish on the airdrop or whatever, um, and they were upset about it post facto. But kind of like we were talking about with Jupiter, you know, my view on these things is that look, as long as you're transparent, it's fine, um, and they are transparent. But I do think all things equal. Obviously, a lot of people aren't paying attention. A lot of people don't. You know, not everybody knows where to go to even find this information, and most people are just lazy. And that's kind of the bottom line answer. Like, I think it's in principle fine if they unlock immediately or if they unlock in three months, they unlock in 12 months. All those are fine. It's just that the standard is 12 months. And that standard, I think, gives people a market expectation that's probably best to just stay in line of it. So, um, but, you know, we're relatively small and very early investors. So we, we, I, I mean, we were most certainly not consulted in any way on any of this. So if if we had been, I think I would have told them that probably it makes sense to. And I think it's also possible, and we've seen it a few times, that projects will go and relock investors in response to what's going on in the market. So we've actually had a number of our deals that were going to become fully liquid. And and the um, they asked investors like, hey, it's probably best actually if you lock, if we all kind of agree, both team and investors lock up for longer, basically to give the market the right expectation. And usually investors, if they're if they're, if they're high integrity investors, usually they'll agree and say, yeah, you know, it's probably the best I, interest I do, of the project. I, I do think an interesting thing about the, the relocking, which definitely has increased in velocity, it seems like, or the last maybe one in the bear market, it increased a lot, right? Because a lot of people didn't want to do uh, events then. And basically, I'm kind of curious if we're, we're going to ever get to some like legal standoff where like some investor is like, absolutely not. And like sues and like, that's going to be a great court. Oh, drama. dude, I, I have a portfolio company that's dealing with exactly this. So there are some very okay. shady, uh, ex- I'll say, so there's some like tier two exchanges that have venture arms that are very litigious. And they're, I mean, I generally speaking, like these kind of bottom of the barrel exchanges, I, I would recommend that most exchange, most founders should not work with them. Uh, they tend to be very extractive. And I've, I've especially over the bear market, I've heard some horror stories of, like every other investor agrees to a relock, except for this one like shitty exchange, and they and they just like start sending lawyer notices and the doing Paul stuff Singer and of token around. generation events. You know the the minority holdout. <laughs> yeah, the yeah, activist coming big... from the exchange, the exchange venture <laughs> activist. Exactly. <laughs> now exactly. that is funny. I mean, that's how these, these 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 are like two year tier two tier three exchanges. Like especially a lot of the Asian ones. Like they're they're so. I mean, it's just really shady, and. Um, well, I think presumably a lot of people, their reason for, for even investing is so that they have a, an idea of when they can list and figure out their feet, right? Like they're they're probably investing not yeah, even so they care about the project. Right? No, they also they, there's also shady stuff that happens. I, I mean, I've heard some really crazy stories of like uh, fake supply getting minted on some of these exchanges that that wasn't even there and stuff like this. So we're, it's it's all it's all really bad. It's all really bad. I've heard some really fucked up stories. So. All this to say, I mean, the, the part of the reason why they end up taking money from these tier two, tier three exchanges is that they offered higher prices than the VCs and they were very easy to go along with. And that's one of the reasons why we generally tell entrepreneurs, like, you look, usually your highest bid 
is very low quality capital. And that's what you see in a bear market is that, that the, the delta between low quality and high quality capital ends up coming out when your project is in jeopardy and one of the investors is like, look, I just want to dump. I just want to get out. I don't care about your project. I don't care about being a long-term holder. So that's one of the reasons why VCs, uh, you know, the delta between VCs is valuable to pay attention to. In a bull market, usually your highest bid is going to be low quality capital. In a bear market is where you end up paying for it. You know, so. So you're advising, you're advising all the founders out there to take the lower valuation. That's right. That's right. Listen up, boys. All take right, the anyway. lowest valuation um, you can. Yes. Cool. Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of, um, uh, no, it's not true. But um, speaking of uh, uh, VC stuff, we should talk about Athena. So Athena has also been getting a lot of hype, a lot of controversy. Um, so I should mention Athena. We led the seed round of Athena. We're we're, we're large investors in it. Uh, I don't think Robot has any stake in Athena, this but is it's now become one of the most controversial projects. For Hasib ever. I know it's I a very, very a lot. Yeah. Well, usually when we disclose stuff, you guys are also invested. So that's this is kind of the the exception that uh, we're invested and you guys are not. But um, you know, so uh, so Athena. People just were very quickly, commenting about uh, that on Twitter actually. Yeah, they yeah, said really? robot invested yeah. in everything. The fact that they did not invest in Athena means the mechanism must be broken. Clearly, yeah, clearly was, the mechanism is broken. Funny, okay. There were some funny tweets. I gotta say. Okay, so let's 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 describe it very briefly and do an explainer because we got a lot of requests to just explain what the fuck is Athena, how does it even work, and why is it not a Ponzi, or is it a Ponzi? And I guess we'll get the uh, Robot Ventures debunking of uh, the mechanics of uh, this thing. But let me very briefly explain it. So um, uh, this thing was seeded by us and uh, Arthur Hayes. It originally the genesis of this was a blog post that Arthur Hayes wrote called what was it like some crusty what was crust that? on dust? I don't remember. Crust on dust, crust on dust. Um, so in it, he described a new mechanic for a stablecoin that is essentially a tokenized cash and carry trade. And I'm, I'm going to leave it to Tom to try to explain in a little more detail what that even means. A lot of people who aren't traders don't even know what, what any of those words mean. So we'll try to explain in a little bit of detail. Uh, but basically right now it has about 300 million uh, plus in TVL. Uh, and the yield, so it's a stablecoin. If you hold a stablecoin, you can get a yield of 27%. Okay, 27% net yield. That is crazy high. That is higher than what Anchor was offering. And so a lot of people have looked at this and said, wow, this is the new Terra. This is the new Anchor. This is obviously going to blow up. This is obviously unsustainable. And something funny must be going on here. And this must be uh, extremely dangerous. Uh, and so they've been arguing back and forth about, is this thing totally broken? And are we going to get the next big blow up in DeFi because of Athena? Okay, so let's explain what Athena is and where is that yield coming from? Tom, uh, you know the team very well. You were the one who kind of led the, the seed in the project. Explain to us what is Athena and how is this not going to blow up? As, how is this not a giant scam? Great questions. Um, it is funny. I think I, looking through the comments on crypto Twitter from the past two days, I realized maybe I'm kind of old because uh, the cash and carry trade is like one of the oldest trades in crypto. Even before you know, stable coins were super liquid and super available, people would offer sort of dollar denominated accounts on exchanges using this exact same kind of trade. Um, but now, obviously, you know you have stablecoins, so maybe not, not not as well known. Concept at its core is you're holding some sort of asset spot, so Bitcoin or ETH, and then you're shorting uh, perpetual futures on an exchange um, to the same amount um, of that same asset. So I would have one ETH on the exchange. I'd be short one ETH per futures, and so it'd be delta neutral effectively. But um, interestingly, in crypto, what does that mean you're delta neutral? Uh, basically, my, my position is not moving in dollar terms when the market moves. Um, and so 
um, when uh, uh, in, in crypto, perpetual futures, uh, again, maybe as, as a, as a uh, explainer for people, you can think of them as basically continuously rolling futures. So um, every, let's say, eight hours, which is kind of the standard, um, uh, the, the exchange will look at the difference between the index price and where the uh, market, the per market is currently traded. Um, that rate, if it's um, above the index price, that difference effectively gets paid to people who are uh, short. If it's below, it gets paid to people who are long. And historically, in crypto, people are extremely bullish. People are willing to pay you know, money and pay interest rates to pay interest to get long on an asset. And so historically, this average is around about 10% um, APY gets paid to people who um, short by people who are long um, on these perp futures products. So um, rolling back a little bit, you're, you're, you're holding ETH spot, you're shorting ETH futures, and you're getting paid, this short position is getting paid um, by people who are long ETH, um, long the ETH perp futures on the exchange. And so you sort of collect this you know, uh, interest rate effectively um, from other people who are also on, on the, the, the perps exchange. Um, the reason why Athena is interesting, so again, not a new idea. It's been around in crypto for a while. Um, Athena is interesting in, in two different regards. One, the concern with this always historically has been what, happen, what happens when funding rate goes negative, right? What happens when, um, hey, actually um, shorts are paying longs. Now you have this short position that is sort of gradually bleeding out um, because it's no longer going to be worth one ETH um, because uh, you're paying interest rate to, few, to longs. What happens then? Um, and then, hey, you know, people have tried to do this in the past um, in DeFi of, um, hey, let's use decentralized perps in order to have this sort of, you know, tokenized, um, you know, cash and carry. Uh, um, by the way, I should be also very clear. The team does not call it a stable coin. It's not a stable coin. It is a synthetic dollar or crypto bond. Uh, 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 they did. They did, though. Let's not forget that they did. No, it's Ever. not. Uh, it's not on the website. It's on the press announcement. Not now. Not now. Not now. But earlier, there was there was actually mention. I think that was the thing to me that I always found very like weird. Maybe like office. a year ago. I don't. I don't think the team positions it though. I, they're very I, upfront I think, about I think the. That, I think. I think we should be clear about that. Was that was part of the marketing and the when they're fundraising. Uh, I don't think it was. I think when maybe they were that fundraising. was fundraising. When they were fun yeah, maybe in the very, very yeah. beginning, but I before think, they launched through anybody, it was. before they launched publicly. Yeah, before they launched publicly. I think I think that yeah. a lot of that was kind of narrowing down the language that makes sure that they represent the right thing to people because calling it a stablecoin does have a certain implication about the degree of stability of the asset. Um, like I, I don't think it's likely that this a cash and carry tokenized cash and carry trade is going to be as stable as a USDC. Yes, and we, we've also seen the problems with USDC. Um, yeah, true. Point, point being, um, two things I think are, are, are different this time. One, um, with the rise of liquid staking tokens, um, you have this nice kind of continuous background yield that can basically act, act as a buffer in the event that you know, yield goes or, or funding rates go negative for an extended period of time. So if you're earning you know, 4% on your staked ETH, that can offset, you know, a period of funding of time when funding goes down to, you know, four, ten percent, whatever it actually is. So you have a nice buffer there that you previously didn't have. If you had, uh, you know, just this uh, Bitcoin, for example, um, cash and carry position, uh, when funding goes negative, you know, you are actually bleeding out because there's nothing to sort of offset it. Um, the other interesting part that I was mentioning earlier on the decentralized purposes, um, Athena is basically tapping into a network of these MPC custodians um, that are separate from the exchanges, so you don't have this sort of you know, FTX type of risk because you have these you know separate third parties that are actually um, um, holding these positions um, in order to tap into centralized exchange open interest, which right now I think is about eight billion dollars just in ETH. 
Um, I think uh, Bitcoin's even larger, like $11 billion. And so, um, you know, historically, these things have always sort of tapped out because there simply isn't enough open interest on decentralized perps to allow these things to grow. Now we've sort of seen how big and how popular perps are on centralized exchanges. Um, the protocol can basically tap into these, you know, huge uh, centralized exchange uh, uh, markets and in theory, you know, grow into them as, as the protocol grows. So um, a few different things that I think are really interesting what about what Athena is doing. And I think, it, you know, the big point here is it's a novel product. Um, people have tried to do things like this in the past. They've always been hamstrung by, you know, a couple of these, these, these different issues. Um, Athena, I think, is a very interesting new approach. And uh, they have all the exchanges on board to sort of allow this network to form and allow them to uh, tap into this, this really huge market. So what, what are the biggest risks then to Athena in hmm. your mind? The big risk that people always talk about is, again, this, this funding rate is issue, right? Which is what happens when funding rates go negative? The answer is um, there's a couple different lines of defense. One is this insurance fund. Um, so, hey, if you look historically, you know, I think only uh, like 15 days or something when we've had uh, funding rates go negative, and even that are for like very brief periods of time. Um, and so historically, you always over what this, period of time? Uh, I think it's the past three, four years of data. They uh, they published, um, or maybe it's 15%. Um, Anyway, they, they, they just published a bunch of historical data sort of describing what's, what happens um, uh, with funding rates over uh, in the past few years. Um, and so when we're talking about funding rates going negative, this is not, oh, all of a sudden this position is underwater, this state Bitcoin is under collateralized. It's, hey, you know, it's, you're basically paying interest um, or stablecoin holders are basically slowly bleeding out or slowly paying interest versus, um, hey, all of a sudden this collateral is worthless and there's nothing. I think of it kind of similar to when Maker has a bad liquidation as we've seen in the past. Um, okay, well, we can re-top up this this uh, collateral, but it's not as if, hey, this, this thing is suddenly, you know, uh, busto, for example. Um, uh, the other thing that I think that that's, that's uh, I think, uh, oh, so the way Athena addresses this is you have this insurance fund, you have this additional stake deep yield, and then at some point in the future, I think they will look into ways to basically, you know, have a sort of uh, uh, protocol level backstop. I don't want to get, you know, too far into the details. In addition to, again, building up this buffer um, from the yield that that is accruing only to people who really stake um, SUSDE, um, not all the yields going to be passed down directly to um, uh, stablecoin holders. So the, the 27% that you see, you know, um, on their website or on Twitter, um, that is a representation of current you know market events in the same way. Hey, during crazy market spikes, you can also earn, you know, 12, 15% on your USDC on you know, Compound or Aave, it's not promising you 20% the same way Anchor did. It's, hey, this is the current market rate. Um, it's not guaranteed that we're going to be paying you 27% in perpetuity. And in fact, I suspect it probably will go down over time as the market sort of matures and as this thing grows. So, so TLDR, the, you make money in the good times, you spend it down in the bad times. And the expectation is that crypto markets historically have been capital constrained as a, a SUSD or what, sorry, a US, what, the, what the fuck is it? What's USD. The USDE is basically like providing capital to markets uh, to allow them to, you know, gamble on the price of ether essentially. And um, people historically want to go long. So if you are giving them the ability to go long, they will generally pay you for that. And when they're not paying you for that, you will be paying a little bit of interest. And that interest, you draw down what you've made in the good times. Uh, and that's more or less the more or less the idea. Well, the biggest risk I see and I don't mean to sound too negative, is that it's essentially a tokenized hedge fund where the hedge fund is managing a somewhat complex trading strategy across many different exchange venues. And the best case scenario, best case scenario, is that you get the funding rate implied by the futures and perps 
on a variety of different crypto exchanges, which you could do on your own. The worst case scenario is that the hedge fund doesn't perform in line with the implied funding rate on all of these different crypto exchanges for any number of reasons why it could go wrong. And, you know, I, I think that's the fundamental risk. Like I, you know, am excited to see it play out. You know, I, I'm always a little bit skeptical of these things, but, you know, this is, you know, a very non-autonomous system at the end of the yeah. day. Yeah, I mean, this is you know, V1. It's a capped launch. I think they've been pretty upfront about the risks. Um, I think there are plans, obviously, uh, improving that, execution. That I disagree with. That I disagree with. I, I, think, I, uh, think, I, I mean, think, I think, I think the main, my main gripe criticism actually is the uh, insurance mechanism. So the fact that the staked USDE takes no risk. Uh, so the staked USDE, uh, which is you know basically part of their design always gets positive yield and the negative yield goes only to the insurance fund. And the fact that 99% of their docs talk about how the insurance fund has like, there's no impact cost to it, where in the sense that like, um, you know, if this thing grew sufficiently large, the ability for the insurance fund to actually, like the insurance fund having to take the losses would be taking them at the worst time. They All the analysis assumes kind of this like linear growth of funding rate, no kind of worst case volatility assumption. And that's how they get the kind of small insurance fund that they claim. That is a very misleading thing. We've we've actually, in fact, seen that blow up with UXD and Lemma multiple times. Um, and I think, obviously, they had DEX liquidity, so it was much harder. But I, I think like there's a bit a bit too much of a rosy, to, to Leshner's point, there's a bit too much of like rosiness in these some of the assumptions that are made. Now, I also think that as long as people are okay realizing they're holding this vault strategy, which is trying to stay around some target range, that's great. But if people start believing in the same way that they believed in Anchor, that it is a stable coin and that they have a way of, uh, you know, it's like free stable coin-like yield, and they start making the size of this thing very large relative to the rest of the market, that is exactly when all the operational shit blows up. And like the, uh, the there's a lot of like rosy colored rainbows in, in their docs about this. And I would say that, that that's, to me, that's the most misleading part about this. On the other hand, it's a, you know, it's an idea that has been tried and failed because on chain, it's too hard to do. So like, I actually think that minus the regulatory risk, right? Like any, I, I could totally see governments, you know, intervening and shutting it down, right? Like they told the custodians plus the exchanges shut down these accounts, the, the whole game is up, but ignoring that risk, I actually think it's a, that part is a novel, uh, Kind of interesting idea, but I do think I do think there's there's a bit of sugar coating here, and that's fine. Whatever the market is dumb right now, it's going to be degen. It's going to be like Terra, uh, but I, I, I and I don't think the blow up will be if when it kind of if there is an unwind will be as bad because it is generally much more collateralized. Um, but I do think there is there is quite a bit of like a little bit too much, you know, like you read the Arthur Hayes stuff. It's like, clearly the guy didn't even, you know, I, I love Arthur, yeah. but like, I just, feel like he's just like to be clear, it, it is ridiculous. fully collateralized. There, there's nothing in, in the sense that this ETH future you have is an insurance position. fund for a fully collateralized thing at all times. No, that's not true. That's the point. The point is there can be this time when you, you don't have, you're not right. Yeah. If funding costs are hypothetically in a bear market or whatever, you know, negative 50% for like a couple days. Right, it rips through an insurance fund really, really, really fast. 
Right. So I think Tarun might also be slightly salty because they hired Chaos Labs instead of Gauntlet to do their analysis on what the insurance fund might be required to support a billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that, that analysis literally looks like a fucking undergrad. Like, I will describe this analysis to you as the following. Okay. Every okay, year, here we go. you go, you go to, uh, you, you, you know, you, you look at undergrad, say, like ML classes, and there'll be like five, five papers that are like, hey, uh, look, I can beat the S&P 500. Uh, with this simple model that I trained with no impact costs, no transaction fees, no kind of like worst case assumptions. And the entire thing is is literally written like this fucking rosy undergrad data science project. Like, I, I would be embarrassed if I, I ever wrote something like that, for the record. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're probably a little scared shitless based on the reaction on Twitter. Because like, honestly, that is like kind of embarrassing research to, to have written for of like this rosy colored assumption. And just like everyone is complaining on Twitter, like for instance, what Kobe wrote, what other people written, the impact cost is the problem, right? Like when you are large enough and you change the market, you the thing doesn't behave in the same way. And that part is the part that is misrepresented completely. So like, yes, you can say, okay, fine. Like maybe it's, it's a personal animus, but like it's like the fucking most basic part of this analysis that's wrong. Like, I, and it's like, yeah, I, I mean, I hear you that, hey, you know, if Athena does get to, you know, eight bill and starts to meaningfully warp the futures market, then, yeah, there will be, you know, some I think, concerns around, hey, how is execution going to affect uh, the quality of the stablecoin? It's also why the team is trying to grow responsibly. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a cap tell launch. Tell me why worst case analysis doesn't assume that. Or assume there's impact. It's like literally written like a dumb undergrad paper. That's like I beat the S and P 500 all the time. Well, it, the risk isn't even going to come from them and the underlying strategy. In my mind, it's going to come from the system built on top of it, where there's going to be some product built on top of yeah, USDT lever, lever, that S levers it up, USDT. and that's gonna yeah, it's gonna attract like three hundred million dollars, and a three percent move in USDE, which is like very easy to have happen, is going to lead to a 60% move in this thing built on top, and it's going to cause who knows what impacts, but it's not going to come from this product necessarily. It's going to come when this gets integrated into other systems, when it becomes like, you know, a market in, you know, Morpho or something like it's going to have some unknown impact somewhere else. And like people have to realize that like there will be days where the funding rate is negative and at scale, this might move the market into a negative funding situation. The Especially other thing I'll say is, yeah. The other thing I'll say is that, like, you know, they have some ability to, to mitigate that by being essentially an actively managed hedge fund underneath the hood, so to speak. Because, like, if you look at it, like, on the CME, there's almost no funding curve at all. It's like almost like a completely flat funding rate for Ether futures. Whereas on some of the exchanges they've picked, which are like as offshore as it gets. The curves are really steep, but like the total mass market funding size is not that big. Yeah, I mean, if you look even at you know traditional securities, right? Like you know, generally the the funding curve you know approximates what you would pay for you know the risk free rate, right? Because it competes with margin, which is also true. Um, I, I I think I hear all of that. I think again, the team is also looking at tranching ways. I mean, you, you sort of mentioned. Hey, should SUSD holders, you know, not take first loss? You can make the same argument around SDI holders, and in fact, you know, you could draw a sort of a similar analogy to 
MKR as a governance hold token and, you know, whatever potential token might come through through Athena in the future. And so but the S5 holders have much more predictable rates, right? They have lower rate volatility. So the the way to think about SDI in that scenario is very different than this in, in, the, in this kind of like worst case. To be clear, the yields are not paid out instantaneously um, and they're not paid out necessarily yes, all directly to. You have you if you're marking your portfolio, right, which you have to do as a hedge fund for this would be marking it and looking at like your overall portfolio volatility. And the volatility for SDI is going to be lower because of its composition. So th there's a lot of nuance to this, that, which I think is like why I don't buy the rosy colored it, marketing also. Like the marketing I is don't, like- I actually don't think SDI collateral is more stable because you're taking pure ETH market risk versus something that is delta neutral and taking some, taking some funding risk. Like in a worst case scenario, so, if you're trying to get 50% versus the, the, the rate curves in in Maker are, are is very different, right? Like there's also duration risk differences between the two of those, especially because funding's paid out periodically. Yes, um, I, I would agree with that. I think the point being, hey, we're not talking a scenario where the value of the collateral drops, you know, 30% in a day as it is with, you know, a lot of these long tail tokens or even a lot of, you know, major lending protocols have had issues with these. We're talking about a scenario where, you know, suddenly, you know, uh, funding starts to drop and, and you're paying you know, a few bips per day, um, which can be again mitigated with a sufficient treasury. Um, and again, it's it's not as if uh, this is something where, um, hey, we just let this thing grow, uh, you know, in, in infinite size and totally warp the market until it crashes. It's more about, hey, how does this thing grow in a way that's also you know sustainable and scalable? Yeah, look, I, I will say uh, I haven't read the Chaos Labs paper, and so I I, I I can't weigh in one way or another of whether they. Um, had rosy colored glasses. I'm sure they do because it's a startup and they started with nothing. And so, yes, like any, that, that, any that financial product like, you're that building. That thing is a little embarrassing. I mean, I feel like if this blew up. Okay, I look, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Let's, let, I, 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 yes, I've, I, I get the idea. Um, I, I think, um, I will say, I think the team, uh, I'm not as close to them as, as Thomas, but uh, the team has been pretty active on Twitter, just basically responding to everybody. And I think they've also been pretty transparent. They're like, yeah, look, there's custodian risk, there's counterparty risk, centralization risk. Like we want to, you know, kind of get it to a, a version of the system that is more uh, automated and more predictable. But right now, look, we have V1, we're guarded launch, like, you know, all this stuff, like, you know, LST, DPEG, all these things, they are risks. Like this is a, a system that's composed of many underlying systems that couldn't exist four years ago, but it can exist today. Um, but the way that I think about it, and this is also the way that I encourage everybody at Dragonfly to think about it, is that uh, I don't think it's useful to talk about it as a stable coin as opposed to think about it as a financial product. Like it is a tokenized cash and carry trade with everything that a tokenized cash and carry trade would entail. And if you if you don't understand what that is, you should not buy this product. You should not invest in uh, Athena because that's that's what it is. If you don't know what that is, you should go read up what that is and understand what it points. is before you consider investing in they it. They have points. What's that? They have yeah, points. there's a lot of shit that has points. There's a lot of shit that has points. All that stuff also has idiosyncratic risks. If you don't understand those idiosyncratic risks, you should not buy it. If you understand what it is, and, and and that's the thing too, is that like a lot of what we're talking about, I mean, we're assuming people even know what a cash and carry trade is. I think a lot of people, even after listening to this episode, don't understand what a cash and carry trade is, and that's okay. Um, you know, crypto, like it, it's very clear, this thing is not gonna replace USDC or Tether. Like it obviously can't grow to a scale and it, it has much more volatility than what you'd think of as a normal stable coin, uh, which is why, you know, everybody who's invested has encouraged the team, don't call this a stable coin because people are going to misunderstand what it is and what the risks are. Um, I, I think it's best understood as a tokenized financial product that is delta neutral. Um, and that is desirable if that's what you're looking for. And obviously a lot of people do because a lot of people do the cash and carry trade in crypto. And I think making that cash and carry trade 
tokenized, composable, easy to use, is cool, comes with risks. Every financial product comes with risks. And you know, finance is going to do what finance is going to do, which is probably compose those risks and create weird Frankenstein monsters out of them. Um, but you know, welcome to crypto. I mean, <laughs> like if, if we were concerned that people were not going to do that, we probably should never invented staking in the first place. So know, that, that's my two cents. Uh, I mean, you know, Vitalik did invent staking, I would say. Um, so he did technically, no, I mean, not us, obviously, but crypto. No, no, uh, no, wait, wait, wait. What was that coin before that had the first proof of stake coin was much earlier. Oh, Peer coin? Peer coin. Exactly. I think it was Peer coin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Granted, their Fair model enough. doesn't look like the current. Slashing. Sla invented slashing, right? Like staking yeah. in the modern sense, I think, is uh, staking with value at risk is was invented by Vitalik. So anyway. Um, all right. Well, I'm sure we're going to get a lot of people yelling at us, but uh, we were getting a lot of people asking for our take on Athena and uh, given, given how close we are to the project. That said, obviously, nothing in here is investment advice. If if you are considering holding Athena, don't do it. It's a it's a very scary project, and you know, caveat em tour. Uh, if you're if you're a big boy and you understand the risks, then you should do your own research and uh, you know, don't take anything you read uh, at too much face value without investigating it yourself. So, if there's any lesson in crypto, that should be it. Anyway, um, all right, that's a wrap. I'm sure uh, we'll have people yelling at us next week about this, so we'll uh, we'll come we'll come back and address all the criticism then. Thanks, everybody. Uh, until then, until next time. Yeah. See everybody.